Uh, Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Our passage for this morning for the second week in a row is Philippians 3 verse 17 through chapter 4 verse 1. Again, that's Philippians 3 17 through 4 1. John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress is one of the most popular books of all time. In it, Bunyan describes the journey of a man named Christian as he journeys to a place called the Celestial City from his home in the City of Destruction. It's written as an allegory of the Christian life and all the many experiences and struggles that the believer encounters therein. Along the way, Christian meets such characters as Mr. Byens and Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And he journeys to such places as Vanity Fair, Doubting Castle, and the Valley of Humiliation. Bunyan began the work while imprisoned for conducting a nonconformist worship service. It was a sentence that was originally supposed to last about three months. However, Bunyan's release was conditioned upon the promise that he would stop preaching, which was a promise he refused to make. Before it was all said and done, Bunyan would end up serving another 12 years in prison. His Pilgrim's Progress would go on to be translated in more than 200 languages, and it has never gone out of print since its first publication in 1678. It is believed by many to be the second most printed book of all time, second only to the Bible. And it is widely regarded as perhaps the most influential piece of English literature ever written. I have to tell you, if you've never read it, uh, you don't know what you're missing. You need to go home, pick up a copy today, and get started. It's a wonderful book. Toward the beginning of the book, Christian encounters a man called Evangelist who tells Christian that if he hopes to be spared the destruction that's soon to come upon his city, he must travel to a place called the Wicket Gate. Christian begins to flee the city, and as he's running, his neighbors gather to mock and even threaten him, but he's soon joined by two men who try to convince him to come back. The first is named Obstinate, and the second is called Pliable. Obstinate is exactly as his name implies. He's obstinate. He comes to persuade Christian to come back. Christian tries to persuade him to join him on his journey, and Obstinate flat out refuses. There are too many friends, too many comforts back where he's from. As Obstinate turns to leave, however, he tries to get Pliable to go back with him, but Pliable hesitates. Don't revile, he says to Obstinate. If what the good Christian says is true, the things he looks after are better better than ours, my heart inclines to go with our neighbor. What, declares obstinate, more fools still, be ruled by me and go back. Who knows whither such a brain-sick fellow will lead you. Go back, go back, and be wise. Christian then pleads with Pliable, and Pliable turns to obstinate and says, Well, neighbor obstinate, I begin to come to a point. I intend to go along with this good man. And cast my lot in with him. And together, the two begin their way to the celestial city. Along the way, Pliable asks Christian to tell him more of the celestial city. 
I can better conceive of them with my mind than speak of them with my tongue, says Christian. Better yet, since you are desirous to know, I'll read of them in my book. And Christian proceeds to tell Pliable, there is an endless kingdom to be inhabited, an everlasting life to be given us, that we may inhabit the kingdom forever. Well said, says Pliable. What else? There are crowns of glory to be given us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of heaven, says Christian. This is excellent, says Pliable. And what else? There shall be no more crying, nor sorrow, for he that is owner of that place will wipe away all tears from our eyes. And what company shall we have there, asks Pliable. And there shall be the seraphims and the cherubims, creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look upon them, says Christian. There also shall you meet with thousands and ten thousands that have gone before us to that place. None of them are hurtful but loving and holy, everyone walking in the sight of God and standing in his presence with acceptance forever. In a word, there we shall see the elders with their golden crowns. There we shall see the holy virgins with their golden harps. There we shall see men that by the world were cut in pieces, burnt in flames, eaten of beasts, drowned in the seas for the love that they bear to the Lord of that place. All well and clothed with immortality, as with a garment. The hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart, exclaims Pliable. But are these things to be enjoyed? How shall we be sharers hereof? And Christian answers, The Lord, the governor of that country, hath recorded that in his book, the substance of which is, if we be truly willing to have it, he will bestow it upon us freely. Well, my good companion, says Pliable, glad am I to hear these things. Come on, let us mend our pace. And off the two hurry on their way to the celestial city. However, very soon after that, they come to a miry bog called the Slough of Despond. This slough represents the guilt and fear that sinners often feel as they make their way to Christ. And as they struggle through the muck of this bog, Pliable calls out, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Truly, says Christian, I do not know. And this makes Pliable angry. And he says, Is this the happiness you have told me all this while of? If we have such ill speed at our setting out, what may we expect twixt this and our journey's end? May I again get out with my life. You shall possess the brave country alone for me. And at that he turns around and manages to fight his way out of the bog back the same way he came and he returns promptly back to the city of destruction. Later on Bunyan describes what it was like after his return. He says, Now I saw in my dream that by this time Pliable was got home to his house again. So his neighbors came to visit him and some of them called him wise man for coming back and some called him fool for hazarding himself with Christian. Others again did mock at his cowardliness saying, surely since you began to venture, I would not have been so base to have given out for a few difficulties. So Pliable sat sneaking among them. But at last he got more confidence and they all turned their tails and began to deride poor Christian behind his back. And so we see why he is called pliable. He is easily convinced by Christians pleased to follow, but also very easily discouraged as well by difficulty. He is pliable. 
And this is why he doesn't persevere on the journey. He has no determination, no conviction one way or the other. The same reason he quits is the same reason he's so easy to convert. He doesn't truly believe anything. We've all known a pliable at one time or another, have we not? We've all encountered someone who initially received the news of salvation with great joy only to then turn their back at the first sign of difficulty or trouble. Have you ever wondered what causes that sort of person to walk away? If not, you should, because none of us are immune to this sort of behavior. Yes, John chapter 10, Jesus is quite specific in pointing out that no one can snatch his sheep either out of his or his father's hand. The saints will persevere, and yet at the same time, the scripture repeatedly warns us of those who appear to be sheep for a while, only to turn out to be goats in the end. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is as much a warning as it is a comfort. All of God's saints will persevere, and so you must strive with all your strength to abide in the faith, because if you do not persevere, then it means that you are not a saint, you are not a part of Christ's flock, and you will be found guilty in the day of judgment. This is the attitude that we've seen bear itself out in Paul for the past several weeks, as he's pointed to the, uh, the Philippians to his example in suffering. The Philippians, of course, are suffering persecution for their faith, and some are responding to this by blaming each other as the cause of the suffering. Others are either already considering or they're soon to consider a kind of doctrinal compromise as a way of escape. As Paul addresses this latter group, he points to his own example in suffering and the mindset that he adopts as a way of instructing them how to stand firm in the faith. And what he tells them is that one of the reasons why he perseveres, really the reason why he perseveres, is because he doesn't believe he can participate in the resurrection without it. He tells them that part of being union, in union with Christ means being made like him, and that includes joining, not only joining with him in his resurrection, it also includes participation with him in his death. So suffering for Christ, so far from being a discouragement, is actually a comfort because it points to the fact that a person is in Christ and will therefore participate with him in the resurrection. On the other hand, though, if a Christian shrinks back from suffering, if they make key doctrinal or practical concessions, for instance, in order to preserve their well-being or way of life, just the opposite is true. It means that Christ is not giving them the strength to stand firm, to be conformed to his image, and so they are not in him, and they will not participate with him in the resurrection. Essentially, Paul tells the Philippians that those who persevere can be confident that they're in Christ because it means that they're being supplied with the righteousness that comes from Christ, whereas those who don't persevere cannot have this same assurance since there's no evidence to the fact that Christ knows them. We see how Paul responds to this knowledge starting in verse 12, where Paul says, with respect to this righteousness that comes from Christ, not that I have already have obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see the tension between 
divine sovereignty and human responsibility on display here beautifully. Why does Paul press on to make this righteousness his own? Meaning, why does he exert energy and effort in his perseverance in the faith? It's because Christ Jesus has made him his own. Paul strives to persevere because as he perseveres, it points to the fact that he's in Christ and being supplied with the righteousness that comes from Christ. There's no conflict in Paul's mind between the notion of his working and Christ's doing. Perseverance only comes through Paul's perseverance and effort, and yet if he perseveres, it's only because of the strength that Christ supplies. They're not mutually exclusive concepts. The one who exerts energy and perseveres does so because Christ has made them his own. Again, they're persevering through the strength that Christ applies, but that doesn't mean they don't still feel it. It doesn't mean there isn't a struggle. The struggle, rather, comes through Christ as he supplies the spirit who wages war against the flesh and urges the believer on as they persevere in the faith. The one who walks away doesn't share in this struggle. And that's because they don't have the Spirit of God urging them on, since they're not in Christ. Christ is not supplying them with the energy to resist and fight the inclinations of their flesh. So don't think that just because all of the saints will persevere, that you don't need to be asking this question about guys like Pliable. The scripture tells us that perseverance comes through active engagement in the work of perseverance. So you need to be asking this question. You need to consider why does someone walk away from the faith and how does one persevere in the faith? Because if you don't, then it well may be a sign that you are not in Christ and that you will not persevere when that day comes. So again, what causes someone to walk away? What is the thinking of the apostate? This is the question that Paul is addressing as we come down to Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1. After pointing to his own example and the kind of thinking that shapes his perseverance, he now points to the example of those who've walked away and the kind of thinking that shapes their apostasy. And the purpose, of course, is to warn the Philippians against these types of attitudes so they might abide in the faith. So then, what does Paul tell them? Let's go ahead and read the passage together and find out. Once again, the passage is Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1. Paul says this. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 
In this morning's passage, Paul identifies the apostate by three characteristics, all of which come from verse 19, and that's their glory, their God, and their goal. We looked at the first of these characteristics last week, and that's their glory. Paul says that they glory in their shame. And I explained that this probably refers to their desire for social status. They want to be accepted by men, and the way they're seeking it is through this act that is actually going to be to their disgrace at the return of Christ. I'm speaking chiefly of their abandonment of Christ. These are Romans who are struggling with their estrangement from Roman society, and so they're running back into the status and security provided by Caesar, but what they're failing to see, verses 20 and 21, is that when Jesus returns with all his glory to subject all things to himself, they're going to realize their error and be put to shame in his presence. This earthly glory that they're seeking is going to be transformed into utter darkness in that moment. Now, Paul explains the reason why they're seeking this kind of glory rather than the glory to be found in Christ is because they've set their mind on earthly things rather than heavenly things. They're not looking to the return of Christ, which occurs in verses 20 and 21, at which time Christ will transform the Christian's lowly body to be like his glorious body. They're not thinking about the resurrection. They're not thinking about the glory and power of Jesus Christ. Instead, their focus is on their immediate circumstances. And so, since association with Christ brings suffering and death in, in this life, right, verse 10, They've decided to abandon Christ in favor of those things that will bring them immediate success, immediate comfort. Essentially, they love this world too much, which is why they can't persevere. It's like Jesus says in Matthew 16, anyone who would follow, who would come after him must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. Jesus never promised an easy life. He promised a hard one. It's because these disciples were not ready to pay that price that they fell away. It's not unholy like a man which Christian encounters named Mr. Byens. Mr. Byens hails from the town of Fair Speech. And Christian soon learns that he and his family are all for religion when it's popular. But they refuse to be very vocal about their faith when it's unpopular. Mr. Byans expresses his desire to travel with Christian, but Christian refuses. Unless he's ready to own his religion when it is difficult, as well as when it's easy, Byans refuses, and Christian and his companion, hopeful, journey on their way. Byans is then joined by three new companions, Mr. Hold the World, Mr. Money Love, and Mr. Save All. These three companions ask Byans about the two men journeying ahead of him. And Byans complains that these are the sort that think you are not good enough for fellowship unless you agree with them in all things. Mr. Saval asks Mr. Byans what they said that offended him so much. And he answers, Why, they're after their uh, they after their headstrong manner conclude that it is duty to rush on their journey all weathers, and I'm for waiting for wind and tide, therefore hazarding all for God at a clap, 
and I'm for taking all advantages to secure my life and estate. They're for holding their notions, though all other men are against them. But I am for religion in what and so far as the times and my safety will bear it. They are for religion when in rags and contempt. But I'm for him when he walks in his golden slippers in the sunshine and with applause. Aye, and hold you there still, Mr. Byans, says Mr. Hold the World. For, for my part, I count him a fool that have the liberty to keep what he has shall be so unwise as to lose it. Shortly after that, Christian and Hopeful come to a silver mine dug into the side of a hill called Lucre. And many have visited the mine only for the ground around the pit to give away, which causes them to plummet to their, depth, their, their deaths. A character by the name of Demas calls Christian and Hopeful and beckons them to come and mine in the pit. And Christian and Hopeful refuse, realizing the trap. But a little while later, Bayans and his companions come along and turn aside to the pit. And in the words of Bunyan, now, whether they fell into the pit by looking over into the brink thereof, or whether they went down to dig, or whether they was smothered to the bottom by the damps that commonly arise of these things, I'm not certain. But this I observed, that they was never seen again in the way. This is what's happened to some of these Philippian Christians. They were all for religion when she was roving about in her golden slippers. But once it became apparent that they'd have to go about in rags, against the wind and tide, they lost interest. They wanted to secure their life and estate and wealth in this world. And since that couldn't be had while in fellowship with Christ, they turned away from the gospel. Now the question is, why does that happen? What causes that? Why would someone be so foolish as to consider only their immediate circumstances? There are perhaps many different answers we could provide to that question. Still, I think we find at least one hint in our next point, and that's their God. We've already looked at the apostates' glory. Again, they glory in their shame, setting their mind on earthly things. Let's look now at their God. And that's their belly. Once again, we see this in verse 19. Paul says, with respect to these enemies, their God is their belly. The word for belly here is koilea. It basically means stomach. To say their God is their stomach is to say that they are ruled by their appetites. They worship their appetites by obeying their demands. You've probably heard the phrase, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Right? When someone says that, they're saying in a sense that your appetite is overruling your reason. You're acting according to your craving when common sense tells you you can't possibly eat as much as you're putting on your plate. That's sort of like what Paul is saying here, only he's referring to more than just the eating of literal food. He's talking about a person's physical cravings. So the desire for comfort, for instance, for rest, the desire for sexual pleasure, this would all fall under this term koilea. Paul's are saying that they're ruled by their most based appetites and instincts. There may actually be a broader meaning to this as well. Some have noted that this term koilea refers less to the actual stomach 
and more to the entire lower cavity, hence the translation belly instead of stomach. Well, some think that by this, Paul is actually referring less to the physical stomach and more to what we might call the flesh. And that's because in the ancient world, the entrails were often seen as the seat of the emotions. And so for Paul to talk about the belly, they think this might be a more general reference to our fallen flesh. I'm not personally persuaded by that argument, but I would have you note that Paul does tend to connect our craving for sin with our fallen physical bodies on at least some level. Now, he wouldn't go so far as to say that our bodies are the reason for our sinning. There was an ancient heresy known as Gnosticism that did teach that sort of a thing. Essentially, it said that our physical bodies are the source of our sinning and not our soul, at least not after we've been redeemed by Christ. And so the Gnostic fell into one of two camps. Either they said you need to punish the body to suppress its sinful desires. Basically, you need to adopt a, a kind of religious asceticism that denies the body's its cravings. Or they said you can just go and sin and do whatever you want since in the end your body is the one that's doing it. It's the one responsible, not you, not your soul. Your soul was incorruptible. You can almost see why many Christians latch onto this concept when you read Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul talks about his struggle with sin and how he doesn't do what he wants to do. And as he discusses this struggle, he says, verse 17, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, that is in my flesh. As he proceeds, he explains further in verses 21 to 23, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members referring to his physical body, he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin in my members. As Paul proceeds into Romans 8, he then even connects the, the cessation of sin with the redemption of the body. And he closes out Romans 7 saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord before then going on to talk about the coming redemption of the body and how the spirit groans inwardly in anticipation of this coming redemption. So you can certainly see why some people would be inclined to think that the body is the source of ongoing sin in the Christian after reading Paul, because Paul certainly makes some type of connection between the body and sin. The only problem is that Paul advocates neither religious asceticism nor antinomian freedom as a response to this concept, far from it. Romans 6, for instance, he talks about how Christ has set us free from the power of sin so that we can walk in newness of life. 1 Corinthians 10.13, he says that while temptation is common to all men, God provides us with a way of escape so that we can endure it. So Paul doesn't seem to think that we just do whatever we want because we can't help but sin, which would certainly be the case if our bodies were the cause of our sinning, since our bodies are not yet redeemed. And then on the other hand, he actually condemns the practice of asceticism. He speaks of it as a kind of base and simple-minded thought. 
Colossians 2, 20-23, for instance, he writes, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. He says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You hear that? He says, it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That would be a rather odd thing to say if the body was the source of our sinning. Likewise, in 1 Timothy 4, he condemns those who want to restrict the enjoyment of certain physical pleasures, such as sex within marriage or even abstinence from certain types of foods. It seems to be a kind of proto-Gnostic teaching, and he condemns the concept and tells Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So while Paul does seem to make at least some connection between the sin, sin and the body, it's clear he does not see the body as the source of sinning. And that theology just confirms what we find in the rest of Scripture. Jesus had a body like ours, and yet he didn't sin. That doesn't seem logical if sin is rooted in the body. Likewise, the Scripture tends to connect the concept of the will with the soul or the spirit, meaning we make the decision to sin in the immaterial part of the person, not the material part. So what's going on here? What's Paul, what does Paul think about the body's relationship to sin? Probably the best way to summarize it is by saying that while Paul did not see the body as the reason for our sinning, he did see it as a significant source of temptation. One that, unfortunately, you carry with you, but that will one day be redeemed and transformed in the day of Jesus. In fact, that's precisely what you see here in Philippians, is it not? Look at the contrast in verses 20 and 21 again. Here in verse 19, Paul says that these individuals are ruled by their bellies. In verses 20 and 21, Paul then talks about how Jesus is going to transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. You hear that? Jesus is going to bring our bodies in submission to His commands in the same way that He's going to bring all things into subjection. Paul's looking forward to that. He's anticipating it. But in the meantime, he's acknowledging that our bodies stand as an obstacle to our obedience. And he's saying that these other guys are giving in to that. They're allowing the weakness of their physical flesh to overrule their desire to follow Jesus. Their body is what's ruling them, not Jesus. I think if you want to understand why these individuals had their minds set on earthly things, this is it. It's because they were obeying the demands of their physical bodies. You look at Paul's ministry. And what he endured for the sake of Jesus. And it's apparent that the suffering he encountered for Christ caused him to endure a lot of physical pain. There was the actual persecution, of course, the beatings, the lashings, the imprisonments. But there were also the rigors that simply come with life on the mission field. 
He says he often endured hunger and thirst, cold and exposure, and this even to the point of many sleepless nights. So fatigue as well. The physical stress was so extreme for Paul that in 2 Corinthians 4, he even speaks of his outer self, quote, wasting away while his inner self is being renewed. Point being, if what rules you is your physical cravings, your desire for ease and comfort in this life, for instance, or your desire for pleasure, then you're not going to set your mind on heavenly things. You're going to set them on earthly things. Your treasure will be here on earth because perseverance will be accompanied by literal physical discomfort. And that's not even just because of the persecution that Christians must sometimes face for the gospel or from the rigors of missionary life. Many of us will never experience that kind of physical suffering personally. And so we may think that this doesn't apply to us. But understand, even just the strain of sanctification, this righteousness that Paul's running after in chapter 3, even that is accompanied by physical temptation. I mean, have you ever struggled with lust? Or let me get more to the point. How are you inclined to respond maybe once you start to get a little hungry? Do you start to get sort of cranky? Do you find yourself maybe just a little touchy around the kids? This is the sort of temptation you're inclined to encounter from your physical flesh. And so long as What's most important to you is satiating its desires. You'll never live a life that's pleasing to God. You're going to be driven by earthly concerns rather than spiritual ones. Once again, the Philippians are suffering persecution for their faith. Perhaps some of them are being thrown into jail. Perhaps their property is being seized. Perhaps they're being beaten. At the very least, you can expect there's going to be a social stigma attached to them that's going to make it a little bit harder for them to get ahead in life. The Philippians are going through this and some of them are realizing the price they're going to have to pay either physically or financially. And they're saying, you know what, I don't, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And the reason why this is happening is because they're being ruled by their appetites. They're allowing their fallen flesh to make the decisions for them. So what do you do about this? If perseverance comes from treasuring heavenly things rather than earthly things, and if our physical, material desires of our fallen flesh, if this pulls us into focus on earthly things, what do we do? The answer is rather simple, which is not to say that it's easy, but it is simple. And that's you, you make it a practice to deny your physical cravings. Now listen to me carefully here because I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not talking about mere asceticism. You know, self-flagellation and the like. I'm not saying deny yourself simply for the sake of denying yourself or something like that. Paul very clearly speaks against that sort of thing. Uh, a, a kind of, you know, purposefully punishing the body. He speaks against that. What I am saying, though, is that you make it a practice to act according to what you know rather than according to what you feel. And if that requires sometimes denying yourself some kind of physical discomfort, do it. Don't hesitate to tell your appetite no and do what the Word of God tells you anyways. 
This is the sort of prescription that you find from Paul in other places. 1 Corinthians 9, for instance, another passage where Paul compares himself to an athlete as he runs for Christ. He says, verses 24 through 27, again, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul says he made it a point to say to his body, you're going to do what I tell you. And the idea is that over time, he learned how to keep it in check. Going back to what we're talking about just a few, week, a few verses back, up in verses 12 through 16. I think we sometimes are inclined to think that Paul was just born as this spiritual superhero. Or that Jesus especially enabled him to do things that the rest of us mere mortals can't do. And at least with respect to that divine enabling, that may be partially true. None of us, after all, right, have seen the resurrected Christ. None of of us have been caught up to the third heaven. Paul definitely had some unique experiences that equipped him for his work. (laughs) And that's probably because of how much he had to suffer. Jesus told him at the the beginning, right, how much Paul was going to have to suffer for his faith. But at the same time, Paul says that he strived for this kind of righteousness. Again, he put effort into it. And what that meant is that Paul also learned how to suffer. Part of the reason he could stand before Caesar and not be ashamed like these apostates in Philippi is because he trained himself for that purpose. He repeatedly told his flesh no in peacetime so that when the war came, he was ready to fight. Now, again, this isn't something he does in the power of his own flesh. After all, Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. So Christ is the one enabling Paul to deny his own fleshly desires, but at the same time, the idea is that Paul actively practiced exercising self-control over his body so that it would do what he told it to do. And that prepared him for moments like this one. He even specifically refers to it as a kind of training Over the past several weeks, I've said that the pursuit of righteousness requires effort. I've said that if you want to become mature in your thinking, then you need to be prepared to endure some discomfort and even suffering for your faith. Well, friends, this is part of it. What you must understand is that the cravings of your fallen flesh aren't going away this side of the resurrection. You're going to continue to dwell in this malfunctioning machine until the day you die or Jesus returns. And what this means is that in the meantime, self-denial is a very necessary component of the Christian life. Now again, when I say that, don't hear me say that this is something you do yourself. Self-denial and self-righteousness are two entirely different things. When we're talking about self-denial... We're talking about denying yourself those desires that cry out within you. You're denying the source of your temptation. That's where the self comes from in the statement, from the source of the temptation, not the means by which you do it. Rather, you deny yourself 
with the power that Christ supplies through the Spirit. Jesus is the one who enables you to deny yourself. It's not something you do by your own power. So again, don't overlap these concepts. Self-denial is not the same thing as self-righteousness. They're two entirely different concepts. And while self-righteousness is most definitely not a part of the Christian life, self-denial, self-control, most definitely is. Listen, you can't expect the desire for sin to just go away this side of the resurrection. You can't even remove yourself from it entirely. You can't take yourself out of the temptation completely because it isn't all coming from outside of you. Rather, it's coming from inside of you. It's working itself out through the very members of your body. And so if you're going to keep your mind set on heavenly things rather than earthly things, you must simply train yourself to say no to your cravings by saying yes to Jesus. Again, it's what we saw a couple of weeks back. The way Paul persevered wasn't by looking behind him or even around him. Instead, he looked ahead of him. He pushed himself to run hard by keeping his eyes on the prize. Again, he uses athletic terminology. And just like an athlete suppresses the groans and cravings of their body by keeping their eyes on the reward, that's how Paul disciplines himself against his own flesh. He keeps his eyes fixed on heaven. In the same way, if you're going to persevere in the faith, then you must learn to ignore the immediate cravings of the flesh by keeping your eyes fixed on the prize. And in this particular context right here in Philippians, that prize includes the transformation of the body. There's a day coming when Jesus will return and your body will be raised to be like His. And at that point in time, you will have rest. Think about that. Right now, part of your suffering has to do with the fact that your fallen flesh misinforms you. Even when you want to do what's right, it's sending you bad information. You see this point magnified among people who suffer from certain types of mental illness. The brain or the endocrine system is literally physically damaged, and the result is that it's sending wrong sensory data to the soul. And now the Christian is forced to fight against this bad information as they try to serve God. When Jesus returns, not only will the creation itself be transformed so that every need is fulfilled, but so also will our body be transformed to perceive that creation in the right way. This internal temptation which follows us in our flesh will cease. That's rest, friends. But it's a rest you won't participate in unless you're raised with Christ. So as you struggle against the cravings of your flesh, like Paul, keep your eyes fixed on this hope. You will one day be satisfied. But it's at the resurrection. It's at the return of Christ. And endure with that hope. Once again, the root problem with the apostate is that they set their mind on earthly things. I noted last week that this love for the world can be motivated by pleasure and success just as, it much, just as much as it can by discouragement and pain. And in light of this, I ask you to take stock 
of what things you may already possess, which have the potential to draw your heart away from Christ. Well, this week what we've seen is that this focus on earthly things is often driven by our bodily appetites. Maybe that's the desire for a good job that enables you to go and purchase the physical comforts you enjoy. Maybe that's the desire for a sexual relationship, even, say, with your spouse. Sometimes we can sin even in that realm out of a craving, a physical craving. Or maybe, and this is a bit more complicated, but maybe it's a desire for the emotional stimuli that accompany the attainment of other idols. Again, this is a little complicated, but we are, at the same time, both physical and spiritual beings. Or perhaps better stated, we are spiritual beings who inhabit a physical body. And what this means is that there is a connection between the body and the soul. So not only does the body pump information to the soul, but the soul pumps information to the body as well. There's communication between the two as they exchange information with each other. Well, one of the consequences of this is that when something happens in the spiritual realm, there's often an effect on the body. When you experience sinful fear, for instance, it's accompanied by a very negative physical response. The heart accelerates, right? Limbs shake, stomach becomes upset, the throat dries up. In the same way, when you value the praise of men and then you receive it, what happens? Or when you crave companionship and you get it, what happens? It's often accompanied by this kind of euphoria, in some cases even a kind of exhilaration. You can't overlook this fact. The same kinds of physical pleasures that people seek out artificially through things like drug and alcohol are often produced naturally by your own body. It's the same reason why some people take vitamin D supplements in the winter. It's because when your body lacks vitamin D, it can make you feel depressed. It's the same reason why some people choose to make exercise a regular part of their daily routine. It's because when you exercise, your body pumps endorphins to your brain that can even mimic the effect of morphine. It produces a natural high. They even have a name for it. They call it runner's high. There's this whole reward and punishment system built into the body that's meant to influence you towards a particular type of behavior, beneficial behavior. The only problem, however, is that it can not only malfunction, like I mentioned a moment ago, sending wrong information to the soul, but it can also misfire as our soul provides it with faulty information. We perceive something as a threat, for instance, which is not a threat, and our body immediately kicks in with this very physical response that prompts us to flee. This is the type of temptation that Paul's talking about, which comes from our fallen flesh. Again, it's not the body, per se, that's causing our sin. Our sin is ultimately rooted in our spiritual selves, and yet the body is still encouraging us to give in to these sinful desires, even against what we know to be true with our mind. Can you see what I'm getting at here? We can recognize a thought as sinful and desire to put it to death, and yet our body is still pushing us to give in to that sinful response. My understanding of the passage may not be perfect, but I, I tend to think that this is kind of the dynamic that Paul's lamenting in Romans 7 when he's saying, it's not me that does it, but sin that dwells within me. 
He's getting at this sort of dichotomy where he has these desires that naturally arise almost without thought, unintentionally really, one could almost even say unwillingly, which with his mind, with his will, he wants to suppress. That first part, Paul recognizes as his sin nature, that automatic response. And the second part is the Holy Spirit resident within him, which is repulsed by his sin. And what Paul seems to be noting is that his body tends to side with the first inclination, not the second. It sides with the impressions of his sin nature, not what he knows to be true by the Holy Spirit. That's not to say that he cannot get his body to fall in line when he, what he wants to do with his mind. Rather, it's going against the grain and he has to work to bring it into submission. The sin nature and the body are almost in this kind of conspiracy together against Paul. So Paul is forced to wage war against his own body even as he seeks to be obedient to God. And that's the sense in which the body is malfunctioning. It's taking direction from this indwelling sin nature rather than from what Paul knows to be true by the Holy Spirit. And that's ultimately what's going to be addressed at the return of Jesus. When Jesus returns, even the body will fall into subjection to the will of God. It will fall in line with what we know to be true. And it will no longer tempt to sin. Instead, it will encourage and reward obedience. Now, regardless of whether or not that's what Paul is saying specifically in Romans 7, the point I'm trying to drive at here is that our choices in the spiritual realm are often accompanied by either pain or pleasure in the physical realm. And very often, when we sin, what we're really obeying is that system of reward and punishment which our sin nature mediates through our physical bodies. My sin nature causes me to perceive a fear where there is no reason to be afraid. And so it pumps this very negative physical response to my body to encourage me to flee what I fear and I obey in order to curtail that punishment to my body. Or conversely, my sin nature leads me to perceive a particular good where there is no actual good and so it pumps a very positive physical response to my body to encourage me to pursue it and I obey. In the end, I end up serving these very physical responses which we sometimes associate with our emotions. If it feels good, I do it. If it doesn't feel good, I don't. Listen, when we do that, that falls under what Paul's talking about here. We're allowing our belly to be our God. We're being ruled by our most base instincts instead of what we know to be true with our mind. And that way lies the path to apostasy. If you let your most base instincts rule you, then you will turn away from the faith because your most base instincts are marred by the influence of sin. When Satan begins breathing out the warnings and threats that he means to use to silence God's people, your flesh is going to cry out and tell you to run, and you'll do it. That's what these Philippians did. And that's what you'll do too. And so the question I'd have you ask yourself this week is, what are the physical desires that you're tempted to obey? Where are you weak physically? You can't just act as if your body's not a factor in temptation. Truth is, if you thought about it for a moment, 
I think you'd probably realize you nourish and cherish your body more than you do anything else. And for good reason, right? It's the place of our habitation. Paul's refer, Paul refers to it as our tent in 2 Corinthians 5. You may think I'm kidding, but think about your time. How much of your day do you spend eating or preparing to eat or bathing or exercising or sleeping? You may say, but I spend most of my day working. Right. Now think about how you spend the money you get from your labor. How much of your monthly budget goes towards providing shelter so your body isn't exposed to the elements? How much of it goes towards food? How much of it goes towards clothing? Think about how much we spend on health care. We are physical beings. And as physical beings, we care immensely about the state of our bodies. They are, more than anything else, the instrument through which we perceive our existence. So you can't act like you don't care about your body or that it's not a source of temptation for you. You do, and it is. Probably more than you realize. So you need to think about this. Where are you weak physically? I think of what Jesus told the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane as they physically struggled to stay awake and pray with Him. He says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. He doesn't appear to be talking about the sin nature when he speaks of the flesh there. Rather, he's speaking about their physical bodies, which are resisting their efforts to stay awake and pray with him. And he's warning them in advance about that resistance. Our mortal flesh is weak, and so even though we may have the desire to please God with our minds, our bodies are often going to resist those efforts. And if you're not aware of that and do not brace yourself against those efforts, then it's entirely possible that it will lead you away from the faith just as it did these apostate Philippians. So take this cue from Jesus and learn to guard yourselves against the weakness of your flesh. How do you do that? It's probably a much broader discussion than what we have time for here this morning. Well, we've talked about it in part. We've talked about the, the hope of heaven and how that drove Paul in this context. But I'd also note just briefly this point. A few moments ago, I noted that in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about disciplining his body and keeping it under control. He says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, all in the context of bodily discipline. Basically, he talks about training. He actively trains his body to bring it into submission. And what I want you to understand is that is the context in which he did this was in serving and loving his fellow Christians. The context of that statement is Paul's teaching on the eating of meat sacrifice to idols and the practice of Christian liberty and putting the conscience of your fellow brothers and even unbelievers first and not exercising that liberty. Paul's also addressing his right to receive material compensation from the, from the Corinthians, which Paul refuses to do, choosing to work with his hands instead so that the Corinthians won't think that Paul's proclamation of Christ is motivated by self-interest. So like Paul went and labored and built tents with his hands when he could have been doing ministry. And he did this uh, ministry on the side. It appears he even refrained from the liberty of having a wife 
and enjoying her comfort and companionship so that he could do this, so that he could offer the gospel free of charge. He brought his body under submission in the context of serving his fellow Christians. In other words, it wasn't like Paul went out of his way to train his body. Again, he wasn't a religious ascetic. Paul enjoyed and gave thanks for the physical pleasures he enjoyed as they arose. But he was always conscious of his spiritual responsibilities first. And he disciplined himself to put his cravings second when it mattered. I would encourage you to discipline your flesh in the same way. Next time your flesh cries out in anger and your body responds with the blood rushing to your face, right? Preparing you to fight or flee, resist it. Make your body your slave and restrain your lips and speak words of righteousness and peace. When your spouse is helping with the kids or cleaning up around the house and you feel too tired to get off the couch, get off the couch. Tell your body you will do as I say and make it your slave. Your body has been given to you as an instrument for righteousness. It's supposed to be a tool in your hands to use for the glory of God. So don't be ruled by it. Instead, rule over it. The hammer isn't created to wield the workman. The workman wields the hammer. In the same way the body wasn't made to rule over you, you are supposed to rule over the body. Next week we'll continue discussing the characteristics of the apostate in part three of surviving the downgrade. I encourage you to be here as we consider the goal of the apostate. In the meantime, since this self-control that we're speaking of is a fruit of the Spirit. Let's close by praying that God would give us the strength to serve Him with the whole of our being, including our very bodies. Let's pray.